everybody. This is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing this podcast with your friends. And uh, thank you for subscribing on Apple Podcasts or following us on Spotify or on Instagram. You can find us on Instagram at Kraz Plus One. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E. I also have Kraz Plus One at gmail.com where you can send me comments and messages. It's a crazy time right now, as we all know. And the day this podcast will be released is the day before the biggest election in our time. And if you're hearing this, I know you've heard this on my podcast quite a few times, but I urge you to vote. Please go out there. Let our voices be heard. There's a lot of things that need change. And if we don't say anything or do anything, then we have no reason to complain. Um, So I really, really urge you all to get out there and vote. If you have any questions about voting, go to headcount.org. They have all sorts of information there on voting, where you can vote, registration, all of that good stuff. As usual, I want to give a shout out to Osiris Media. They help me put this podcast together. They have a lot of great content. You can find it at OsirisPod.com. We have a really great show today, and that is because I have an amazing guest joining me. Someone who inspired me as an artist, my band, and so many others. Her name is Ani DeFranco, and she's an incredible lyricist, songwriter, singer, and really amazing guitarist. And I think a lot of people don't realize how great she is on guitar. And her style is completely her own, so unique and innovative. And she may not even know this, but she has paved the way for a lot of independent artists. She started her own record label at age 19 and really created her own fan base and her own way to connect with her fans and put her records out. Since then, she's put out 20 albums on her own label, Righteous Babe, and has also signed a lot of other great artists. Her writing style is poetic and poignant at the same time. She's never been afraid to talk about subjects that most musicians would steer away from. One of the first songs I ever heard about bisexuality is In or Out by Ana DeFranco. She talks about racial division in the song Subdivision. And in her brand new single, Do or Die, she addresses the social and political unrest in our country. I really love this track, Do or Die, and I really love the direction she's going. Uh, One of the things I love about Ani is that she evolves as an artist, and you can really hear that in this new record. It's funky, it's soulful, and and the production is really cool. So I'm excited to hear the rest of that album, and I'm really excited to get into this interview. First, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. A poet a songwriter, an amazing singer and guitarist, and an artist I've followed and been a fan of for a very long time. I'd like to welcome today's Plus One, Ani DeFranco. I'm gonna start with the fact that your new song, Do or Die, is so good, and I'm like obsessed with the video. I just watched it like eight times in a row. Oh, cool. And is and then I also watched the acoustic version. Is that your studio that's in the Yes in that? Yes it oh, is. Cool. Mission I was, Control. I was envious of the cool gear and the cool guitars. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's <laughs> impressive, right? It's like this forty six guitars behind my little bald noggin. I love that. I yeah. love that. Um, I actually been like selling, I mean, I had way too many guitars that I wasn't using. So I've been like 
purging. I still have some. Uh, I still have the good ones, but yeah. I've been kind of like um, purging and getting my my gear. It, like I'm just trying to like have. I'm trying to make sure that the things I have, I'm using. And yeah. There was a bunch of stuff I wasn't using, but it was also because like I just collected stuff because I could get them. I'd be like, oh yeah, I'll take that one or this one's cool. And now I'm like, okay, let me just you get the stuff that I'm really gonna use. That's mm. gonna be a part of my life. Mm. Um, I hear you. But I looked like all yours were cool. Yeah, <laughs> and vibey. it's hard. It's hard to go and pick the one that you don't think you might not desperately need. Right. Yeah. Right. It was sure. a process. Well, I just and I think you, that our, in our email exchange, you, I, I have a baby, a new baby. Yeah. Um, congrats. Which has been amazing. But and also like just on so many levels, um, as you know. Um, I'm sure it's it's a little bit different. The woman's really doing most of the work up until this point and during this time. You um, mean the sow? Yeah. <laughs> oh, right, woman, right. <laughs> yeah, oh, my yeah. God. It's like, yeah, you just feel like you're just a hitching post. Exactly. Right yeah. now, that's, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I basically, we've like kind of worked on a rhythm where I kind of get up early in the morning and like hang out and do things while she, so she can sleep a little because in the night, it's like yeah, craziness. Yeah. That's sweet. Um, but anyway, what I was trying to get at is your new single, Do or Die, is so good. And um, it just like, Combine and then one of the things that I love about your music, and I've been a fan of your music for a very, very long time. But you and whether you call it like social commentary or like it's very like culturally aware, but the music you just want to listen to the music. There's a lot of music mm-hmm. to me that um, has the message I want to hear, but I don't want to listen to it over and over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, 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 and, yeah. And, and I, I just, I love how soulful this particular song is so soulful and so funky. I can tell you've been in new Orleans for, for yes, a while. Yeah. For know? real. I mean, oddly, this is the first recording in a while I haven't made in new Orleans with, okay, okay. you know, it's, it's actually not, Terrence behind me, my wonderful Terrence Higgins, yeah, New Orleans, yeah. New Orleans through and through, as you know, yeah, yeah just yeah. like badass funky drummer. So, yeah, this was a weird situation where I I just showed, you know, I was talking to this fella Brad Cook, okay. who uh, I met at the Iver Fest. Um, okay. The Bon Iver puts on this yearly... Oh, right. Okay, yeah. Ep- epic gathering. It was so awesome to be included last year because they invite all these artists, you know, musicians, but also dancers and poets and fabric oh, designers cool. and whatever for a week and they feed you and they booze you and they put you up and they're just like, <laughs> collaborate. What do you want to do? Who do wow. you want to do it with? You know, so I met all these people yeah. and made a lot of new great pals and talked a lot of music with Brad and so I was trying to figure out how to make this recording of that song and all the other you know my new record during a pandemic the lockdown has started you know I can't fly in Todd plausibly like even just doing a session at the house it's all suddenly so complicated and somehow in a sentence Brad made it simple he's like if you will get your ass on a plane and fly to Durham, I'll do the rest. I, right. Just five days. I'll yeah. put. To, I know some dudes. I'll make some calls. Hold on. I make some. You know. So I showed up and we recorded that Do or Die song and the rest of the record in a wow. few days. 
I didn't know any of these dudes. I, I didn't know what I was going into. I was just like, I'm saying yes. I'm saying yes, and I'm going right, for right. it. And I was so, I mean, as it happened, there's all these dudes skulking around the hills of North Carolina that are just badasses. Wow. And they just made this, yeah, uh, I feel really excited about that song. And, and like you say, like the listenability yeah. of these new songs, because uh, I feel like I am as guilty and more so than most about, you know, your your heart's in the right place and the message you're sending out. You know, you feel it so deeply and so strongly, but you got to make it listenable. You got to, yeah. you know, I, I feel like I'm guilty as any of sending that message out too shrilly or in the wrong way or, you know, and it sabotages itself sometimes, you know. So Right, right. Um, I love the production and I love, it's funny, I was going to ask you about that, so I'm really glad that you, you kind of went into that, because even just, like, like the, the tastiness of the parts, like, the snare drum, like, came in, like, where I didn't expect it, kind of later, and, like, was, like, real thick, and I just, there was so many things about it that I loved, um, as, also, as a music maker, it was like, ooh, like, oh, they put that there, and so, um, props to Brad and, and the yeah. crew, and just, yeah. and it's a great song, it's, um, and I love the video, and I was like, curious a little bit, like how you connected with the dancers, yeah, yeah, and yeah. how that came together. Yeah, well, the video—that's that was a whole other saga. Um, I have this friend in town that I made the Prison Music Project with. This was a record that was sort of ten years in the making that we just right. released last June, um, and my number one partner in that was this uh, person, Zoe Bookbinder. She, uh, they're a songwriter. Um, but also, as it happens, uh, a badass director. I just yeah. love Zoe's videos. Zoe has made a bunch of really great videos just on their own, low budge, but there's something always there. Like, they have yeah. a, they have a a sense for it and I freaking hate videos <laughs> and have yeah. avoided them most years most albums most of my life whenever I can but with Zoe I thought you could make this fun you could and yeah. how else am I supposed to even like I can't go on tour I'm releasing an album yeah. how like what do you even you know so I I, res I resign myself I'm gonna make a video this time and Zoe you gotta help me and Zoe, yeah, yeah. Zoe took the reins, kind of came up with the basic concept of like, you know, okay, I have this cool old bike. You're going to get on the, your, the bike and you're going to ride around town. And, you know, we went to the, the levee where it busted and flooded the Ninth Ward. We went to, you know, um, you know the, this bridge... At the, the the bridge at the end where I climbed and and hung our banner, I love that. Yeah. we yeah. didn't even realize like that's a place where people do a lot of political actions. Um, that we didn't even realize though that that memorial for people killed by police, murdered by police, was all along that right. bridge. It was so perfect. Right. There was all this serendipity, and um, there's this great dance joint 
by my house in the bywater dancing grounds they're very political very community oriented very multi-culty super cool um sort of cultural center and zoe connected with them and you know it was all about you guys make up the dance you got we're gonna make signs it's gonna be you know it was sort of this hybrid protest street party you know action you know like you decide what you want to say you we're all making our own signs we're all empowered we're all directing ourselves each dancer came up with some of the steps so it wasn't even like a choreographer dictated it was it was very collective and right and natural yeah. yeah It really captured in the essence of New Orleans for me too, and it made me really miss it. Like that's why I kind of wanted to like watch it again because it just brought me there. It was so, um, just like the rainy streets and the the I don't know. There's just a certain vibe that only New Orleans has, and if and it, it really captured that in a cool oh, way. Oh, cool, awesome. Yeah, I love it. Um, and so this is your. 20th album or is it maybe even your 21st album second 22nd okay crazy i mean does that ever blow your mind when you think about i mean you started making records at a at an early age but that's pretty uh, that's an amazing number it's quite it's quite a pile now and um (laughs) it was another sort of you know uh sort of getting down with brad in Wisconsin, which yeah. sort of got the ball rolling for how this record manifested. It, right. That was like the first um, sort of moment of serendipity that I just really think carried and brought some grace to this record. And yeah, yeah. so I'm talking to Brad, and I'm there with all the Bon Iver crew, including Justin. Yeah. And, and okay, so Bon Iver music, just period, and all those badasses who uh, I just I love all of them <laughs> I love too, you know too. all this stuff that they've put out I live by Bon Iver records more than almost yeah. anything else yeah. the past bunch of years yeah me too so 22 a million right like yeah. this this like I lived that record and then so Brad is sort of sharing with me and then Justin like 22 is kind of a totem number for Justin right. and and yeah. and so it was like, this is your twenty second record, dude. We're doing yeah. this, you know. So yeah, it just yeah, felt yeah. like it was all, you know, just sort of I was in the flow, you know. Yeah. Sometimes when you are able to give into that, it all just fall. It just you know grows on itself. And if you don't mind, I'm gonna go back a little bit to the Buffalo days because we have a little bit of connection there too. Soul Live origin. Well, really, the other two, the brothers, originating in Soul- in um, Buffalo. And uh, you know, from what I, I've 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 kind of gone down the rabbit hole a little bit on on your music and on on various things, but. From what I've read, you were nine years old when you started performing. And I'm curious, like, what music was in your house that kind of inspired you to pick up a guitar and what that was like? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't come from a musical family, per se. Like, uh, nobody but me played music. Um, But my dad had a great record collection. 
Uh, and, and that's sort of my musical subconscious for reals. Like I didn't, I didn't realize so much later, but you know, oh no, names are going to escape me. But John Fahey, you know, that uh, uh, acoustic guitar player, like crazy drunk, what, what do you call it? I actually don't know him. Oh yeah. John Fahey, he sort of went off the rails, uh, at some point in his life and was sort of living in a motel or hotel and you know and um but made they call it sort of primitive primitive instrument you know acoustic like that guitar playing when i tapped back into it as an adult i'm like oh there there i am there it is right um you know my dad had like a lot of blue note records a lot of jazz a lot of like American, he loved like Aaron Copeland. I, I seriously, I think that composer and the Americana, like first wave Americana of the, you know, 20s and 30s and foot when America started to fall in love with itself, that, that artistic expression was deep, deep in me from the get go. And then the whole sort of entree into the folk music world and again american song american culture um you know that i i gained entry to through this guy michael meldrum who was a singer songwriter barfly troubadour in buffalo and he took me under his wing when i was nine and started bringing me to all his gigs and i'm playing you know Yesterday, I was that the man I used to be, you know, just like. And he was like, such, was. he was, he was your guitar teacher initially, or yeah. Yeah, my 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 real everything, you know, yeah, sort of yeah. taught me what it means to be a folk singer, and right. introduced me to a lot of song makers when I yeah. was a kid, kid, kid. Would bring them in from New York City and promote you know, little folk shows and little clubs and they would stay when my parents were still together. So I'm like nine, 10 in my parents' house, sometimes like Suzanne Vega in my room with me, you know, I had, yeah, you know, you know, so, and I would see them play and ply their songs and work their talky talk and do their thing. So that's how I learned the gig. Right, right. And as far as your... Right, Buffalo. Buffalo, you know, is... It doesn't get the credit it deserves. Also on, like, the jazz scene, there was Mm. a lot of great organ players and piano players and composers. Um, But as as far as your guitar playing... um, and the technique that you've kind of developed that's completely your own. I mean, were you taking techniques that he was showing you and kind of pulling them into a different world or were you just kind of like self-taught? More self-taught with me, like my playing way different from Michael's. So I didn't, but Suzanne Vega, a lot of that shit in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Joan Armitrading. Right, right. Um, I was going to ask you about her, yeah. Oh, John Martin. You know John Martin? English so. English bloke. Okay. Um sort of very jazz inflected. Yeah. I think heroin influenced. Uh right. sort very slurred, incomprehensible words, but these records that as a teenager 
uh, just overtook me. Like, right. again, that was another influence that I didn't discern till much later. Like, oh my gosh, I am so John Martin in a way different package and right, scene. Right. Yeah, so. Well, it's interesting to hear about some of like the jazz records that we, you were, were in your house because I always I hear in your melodies and your inflections um, so much. It's, it, there's a lot of depth there, you know what I mean? And I hear like Billie Holiday and I hear like these old school singers as an influence. But then underneath it, you're, you're playing has this like percussive, obviously like you're, you're playing bass lines and all this stuff. I, from, from playing with you the couple times that I have, like has been such a challenge to understand. I've ended up just being like, fuck it. I'm going to play what I would play. <laughs> But figuring out what you're doing is very hard. Um, and a part of that's also the different tunings. Um, so I'm a, I'm interested in, like, was that kind of um, out of necessity to kind of support, like, your, you were your own band, essentially? You know, doing the, the bass stuff and the tunings. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. There... I mean, a little bit of that outsider art, like, though I listen to a lot of music like you said early yeah. on i think that expanded my ears right and made me deep inside have a a weird aversion to pop to the predictable like I, yeah it's yeah. like for me there's something i when i experience the predictable in music sort of you know it's like it's like anti to me it's it's like right. it's like the opposite of art it's i feel repressed by it you right. know instead right. of expanded so there's something early on that entered that made me want to go into the unknown to be to have something come at me that i didn't know existed and yeah there was a lot of that but then i think my process of whatever learning how to play and how to be a musician myself i did a lot sort of on my own so you know it's very it became very indigenous to me and i didn't i you know i don't read music and i don't know i have to count on my my knowledgeable friends to say it's in this key and she's doing yeah, this yeah. over here and it's going to the third or the whatever the hell number right no i remember i remember when we were rehearsing you played with us um i think it was like two years ago at, at uh, tibetina's when we did the benefit show yeah. and when we were rehearsing through the songs i had to kind of i did have to break down certain things and there were like odd bars and stuff but for for me it was like i'd listen if i'd listened to it enough i just knew i just went by the lyrics you know oh, and bless I, you. I, I well, I, but I also think that's interesting. You said that it's indigenous to you. And like for me, I learned guitar listening to like Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and learning these songs. And I feel like for you, you know, maybe you're playing and I'm, I'm, this is more of a question, but I'm, I'm kind of assuming that you're playing developed as an accompanist to your songs and as part of your songwriting. Am I right by saying that? I mean, I think certainly in the beginning, my guitar was just a vehicle, you know, like the bread is the vehicle for the Nutella. Like I just want, right. I had something, right. I had something I needed to say desperately to somebody or so, a, 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 a story I wanted to tell and the guitar was the bread. But I think at some point 
because I was so lucky to have developed a relationship of my own with an instrument that any kid who has that, it it took on a life of its own. Like at some point right. it was not just a vehicle. It became like I began to experience many nights when I was on stage and there was something in the way psychologically for me, you know, between letting the truth out of my mouth or having the truth come through my voice, I could feel the truth in my hands, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that just became another way of freeing myself as so many real musicians understand. So I came at it as a songwriter and a vocalist, but I think I developed just enough you know, facility with my instrument that I found freedom there too. We'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors. I've loved watching the different instruments that you kind of tackle. I always see it as like you're kind of tackling these instruments when I've seen you perform. And a lot of them I've seen you with different tunings and different setups and like taping your fingers. Um, you've kind of like totally paved this completely different road. Like for me, it's like I can watch most guitar players and be like, oh, that's cool. I can maybe take a piece of that or maybe I could. Oh, that's cool with that. They're doing that. Like maybe I can like sh- practice that when I saw you for the first time when we open I remember when we opened for you like somewhere in Colorado I think it was might have been Red Rocks actually I remember watching you from the front and just being like I have no idea what's going on (laughs) and also your ability to do that (laughs) well I'm discovering that but in the most beautiful way you don't either but also the ability to sing with such freedom over that was that something you like actually sat down and had to work through or like you said did you just kind of slap that nutella on the bread and it just tasted repetition great? baby yeah, right yeah, you yeah. know and i know you just my process of writing any song before it becomes really playable or giveable to somebody else is just like like i could hear how i want to sing over that groove and if it's a complicated interface, I just got to do it again and again and again and again and again. Yeah, yeah. Till, you know, till I am free to do what I hear. It takes me, yeah. I'm not, I have such respect for musicians like yourself, for musicians that can ear, ear play, I, you know, hear something and play that thing in that right. moment like that to right. me is like magic that i don't yeah i hear it and then i have to go shed for an hour or two weeks right. to get right. there like i can't right. you know I, i'm not an improviser in that sense i mean i could do it with my voice because you know but yeah. not on my instrument and so that level of being able to follow your your own ideas extemporaneously with your hands is like so what what a genius thrill but so that's when i watch you know people other than myself who can do that who can improvise i'm like damn i'm jealous yeah (laughs) well you do that with your voice pretty effortlessly um so at 
at 19 years old, you created your own label. I know before that you, you did study music or you, you went to, was it, um, Buffalo State, and you also went to the Academy of, Academy of Music? Of uh, Visual that? and Performing Arts, you know, like the Fame High School. Right, the in, Fame in High Buffalo. School. But I was actually a dance major. Uh, so, oh, that's what I was yeah. going to ask you. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And when did, but did you know, like, how early did you know, like, music is going to be my I thing? mean, I, I was a teenager, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I probably earlier on, really. I yeah, mean, there yeah. was a tension between dance and music for me. I didn't know which I coveted more deeply, but as, right. as music, music, you know, dance, it became more and more evident in my life and my experience with dance that it was sort of this thing that happened off to the side somewhere in a sort of exclusive place where dancers were dancing for each other. And, you know, it was not connect, it was not the thing that was happening on street level that people, you know, uh, this is sort of essential art form in that in the way that mm-hmm. I was involved in it. So, you know, music, I think I just gravitated towards music because it happened in bars, it happened on the street, it happened between people at a table where they were eating. Right. You know, Michael would come to my table and we would sing songs, you know, yeah. and that and this to me was like that total uh, organic incorporation of expression and and sharing, creating things together, incorporating that into everyday life. I was like, well, that's that's the art form right, I, right. I, I want. And you, you started making records at 19, and right at that point, you created your own record label. Um, and there was not a lot of people, there were not a lot of people doing that at this time. We're, were you doing that? Did you ever do the like shop shop my my demo around to all these other labels, or did you have that vision at that point? Like, I want to create a label and do this myself. I mean, I had a manager uh, yeah. when I was fifteen, sixteen, you know, yeah. and he had that traditional vision. Like, uh, yeah. uh, we're going to make a demo and I'm going to shop it to labels, yep, you yep. know? So yep. he began embarking on that folly. And <laughs> in the meantime, I was gigging. I was yeah. gigging. I was focused on the next gig, man. Yeah. And at some point, you know, my the genius of Righteous Babe, uh, I'll explain yeah. it in one second, in one sentence. It's like demand before supply, you know, right. that's you just right. keep following. So I'm gigging in Buffalo. I'm playing at Nietzsche's and the Essex Street yeah. Pub and I'm running open mics and I'm paying yeah. my dues and I'm learning my craft and how to not be colossally sub- self-conscious and self-deprecating and gross on in front of people like just right drop all that you know took me 20 30 years but um i started hearing from people like did you have you made a tape right uh, you know i wanted I, i'm into these tunes i want to take them home you know it's like oh make a tape you know and so i made a tape yeah and then i made 22 yeah. more tapes and you know here yeah. we are right right and that was that, and then did you ever see it as being a label and signing other artists or was that something that just kind of developed 
later over time. Yeah, it evolved. It evolved yeah, over evolved. time. You know, initially it was just like, to the music yeah. industry. I don't need yeah. a middleman to sell a tape at my shows. Yeah. And lo and behold, I could take a $50 gig and I could make $150. I could make $200, yo, by selling. Yeah. The, I just sold 10 tapes, tapes 20 yeah. tapes. Like, yeah. that was yeah. that was life-changing for me. And I yeah. kept rolling with that. How is that not the way to be? You know, like... And and then as far as then... Because then at this point, you're mostly playing in, playing in Buffalo, right? And as But as you started touring the country... Obviously, you could, you know, create the tapes, create the tapes. When did it flip over to like, okay, I need a distributor and figure out, did your manager navigate that side of it for you? Demand before supply. That was excruciating (laughs) because it was a decade of hearing people show up to every single gig I did and said, I can't find your tapes anywhere. Like, what? This sucks. I have to wait till you drive to my city or within 200 miles and then I have to go to you and get your tape from you. Like, get it together. Right. And literally enough people walked into enough indie stores and said, do you have Ani DeFranco? And they went, who? And then they started looking in their indie catalogs and maybe eventually they found me in the women's music catalogs that were the first people to distribute my shit. Right. But eventually... That's crazy that that was even a thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And and they took the music from those women's music catalogs and they put it in the women's music bin section in the back of the store, dude. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Dyke music goes in. It has its special (laughs) bin. It's it's a little card. Yes. Wow. But then uh, an actual national distributor, indie distributor called Righteous Babe and said hey let's talk we hear we've been hearing about you I've gotten calls from enough stores now I think we should carry your shit wow people people did it that's a beautiful thing and uh, how long were you touring like the country and and I'm just curious like what were you just totally solo at that point like driving a a van or a car or was that that point like I mean I'm sure it all grew um, but was it years of that before you started bringing a band with you I mean I did the duo me and a drummer thing a lot right Andy Stachansky jumped in and I went from you know, a Hyundai, or at first it was a Beetle, a Volkswagen yeah. Beetle that I crossed the country in, you yes. know, my little guitar, my three. And, uh, yeah. you know, we went to, you know, then it was a van and it was me and Andy for yeah. six years. Right. And doing the acoustic guitar and drums thing, which people were like, er, er. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, after that, you know, more people that I play with, different bands, you know, different musical relationships and outfits that I I did for a while. And And then you moved to New York City shortly after you kind of started the label. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And then were you playing, were you playing with, with New York musicians a bit too? 
I mean, or was that kind of like where you crashed? Like, were you were you like in the scene there, playing New York clubs and stuff? A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. You know, like I found myself. Uh, I, I went to the new school for social research, and oh, right, right. and I discovered this creative writing teacher, Sekou Sandiata, who's a, a spoken word poet. He had a band called Dada Do Dada, and I just yeah. I was like his number one fan. And in his class is Mike Doty, who ended up fronting Soul Coughing. But at the time, oh, yeah, yeah. we were both just. Rhythmic, acoustic, guitar player, song maker, people, poet, kids, you know, and yeah, so yeah. there was a little bit of like, you know, Roger Manning, the sort of anti-folk, East Village, I'm living in the East Village, I, I, I had a bit of a community, but, you know, I, I would say more so than that, I was, I was sort of on my own, you know, floating through things and places. How long were you actually there studying at the new school? A couple of years. Yeah. And that was, were you touring kind of at the same time? Yeah. So, you know, I started getting hired to play at, at, at Rutgers and I trained in New Jersey right, right. or I'm going up to right. Poughkeepsie or the, and then my weekends ate my week and I dropped out of school, you know, um, yeah, yeah. because the traveling, playing music, you know, just organically took over. Right. And going back a little bit, because I'm, I'm also curious about your interest in poetry. Was that something that kind of aligned with music early on? Like, were you were you writing poetry before music or was it like you started writing lyrics to music? Yeah, before music. You're, yeah. You, yeah, you, you called it. I think, it, yeah, at first it was like I I remember being a very pretty little kid and being introduced to poetry at school in Buffalo, public school and and you know, I mean, maybe I'm making it, maybe I'm just like post-designing my life, but I remember thinking, whoa, that's cool. Like yeah. if you distill language down, like, like whiskey, you know, it's more powerful. It, you can you distill it way down and then you expand its borders like you can say more with less right. if you if you get it right so i got yeah. into that as a kid and i wrote a lot of poetry i made little books of poetry that before i even picked up the guitar the fearlessness in your writing is something that i've only i don't see in a lot of artists i think maybe some hip hop artists well, maybe, maybe, but you touch on, not even really touch on, you tackle, I've used the word tackle more than ever in the past like hour, but um, topics that most people veer away from. Um, Subdivision is one of the songs that really, it just starts off like, white people are so scared of black people. And you talk about um, racial division, you know, and but you're just really saying it right off the bat. You're not dancing around it. I'm wondering if there are like other artists that inspired you that had that same kind of fearlessness in their writing or other lyricists that, that you were like, okay, I want to emulate that or I want to, you know, take that to where, to my own place. I'm not sure like what writers gave me permission 
although I do really appreciate your analogy between sort of the you know in your faceness of how I've yeah. always written and hip hop rappers like yeah. because I believe there's a connection there that uh, not not necessarily direct like one influ it's it influences each other but that there is a vi like the way people have often said you did this indie you started making your own record in your own label before anybody yeah. ever heard of that and i'm in retrospect really i've learned except for all those hip hoppers all those rappers right. who Selling have made CDs their right own up, yeah. cds sold them in their community made their own uh, labels it was the same thing from my subculture that I was doing. And so, you know, just on parallel tracks in parallel universes, it's it's too bad we live in such a black and white world because I think there's a real direct comparison there from, you know, just kids speaking their truth, controlling their... Uh, the means of their own production, take seizing the power back in their voice, in how they share their voice, you know. Uh, and so I think I was just one of many flavors, really, of that yeah. occurring, of that yeah. being enabled to occur by the advancement of certain technologies, you know. Another thing that you talk about in your music, which has always been in music, but sexuality to me has always been in music from the male perspective. Um, and in, in or out might be like the only succinct, uh, song talking about bisexuality that I know of. Uh, and, and did, did you have, were you ever like nervous at all about talking about that? Or was this all just like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and people are going to judge it how they may. Say, I was all prepared to say I was on a mission. Yeah. I wasn't nervous. I had a job to do, but right. of course I was nervous. Really? Of yeah. course, I, of course I. You know, especially and still, really, it's 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 the people closest in that 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 I worry about the most. You know, and in the beginning, it was my mom might hear this song. My, my dad's going to hear this song. My dad came to this show. You know, my ex, my Z, my Y, my friend, my lover. Yeah. And that's still really what is the scariest, to say your truth in front of your family, in front of people who are in these songs, in front of people who know that who you're talking to. And it might be that that's the scary it's all it's still scary yeah wow that's interesting that's interesting it's crazy how that really is our thought process when actually when the song actually in its breath is like affecting so so many people but to to us as artists as writers it's like we don't obviously want to offend the people around us it's that one person that you're worried yeah. about it's like right. saying that saying that to a room of strangers is is no problem but Ooh. yeah, yeah. Wow, that is really crazy. Um, I want to ask you about something. Um, I don't really know exactly what happened in this particular instance, but as you may know, well, first, first off, I'm going to rewind and say that you know, Soul Live was 
a Buffalo band to a certain degree, even though I'm not from Buffalo. And I remember when we were first playing our first gigs, you were like an icon to be on it. Like it was like we would go into an, an, a, a play a venue, and they'd be like, "Oh, Franco used to play here, and she has built her own label." And because at that point we we're like, "Are we going to be on a label? What are we going to do?" We'd be like, "Oh, Franco doesn't need a label. Like she's playing <laughs> these huge places and da 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 da." da. So. You know, you were, and we used to play your music in in our van or our whatever means of travel, and we recorded a version of Joyful Girl that originally was an instrumental, and we had been touring with Dave Matthews, and I can't remember exactly how it happened, but he, it was right around he, his wife gave birth to twin girls oh. and we had been listening we he, I, I think I, I don't even know if sending tracks was a thing then but I, I played it for him in some sort of way and he was like oh man I'd love to sing on that and I'm a huge f- fan of Ani's and we were like oh. oh great and we had never met you or anything like that at that point and um, fast forward like six months the album comes out and they that the, we had been in this record deal with Blue Note Capital, and you know it was one of those things where like you sell as whatever records you never recoup, and and uh, the song got used for a movie. Uh, I think it was like the trailer of a Denzel Washington movie. I don't even remember all the details, but I do know that because we hadn't recouped and didn't write the song, even though it it got a bunch of money in some sort of way, we didn't get any of it. Mm. And what I heard, and this might, I don't even know if it's true, but my manager, or my manager, actually my brother at the time said, hey guys, I think uh, Ani's like sent you money. And I don't know if you remember this or even know about this, but supposedly because of the recording, we, I don't know if it was you or your manager basically called us and not only offered that, but that offered basically, Oh, we heard like you guys kind of got screwed out of this. So here's this, that was number one. And then number two was, uh, do you want to open for her on a tour? And of course, we were like, oh my God, she's the best. Yes, yes, and yes. So I'm curious if you even remember any of that. Oh, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> it's it's all pretty vague. It's all pretty vague. But yeah, I mean, I just, I remember being very flattered, very honored that you covered my tune. Yeah. It was beautiful recording. You know, I remember getting a drunk phone yep, message yep. from Dave one night. <laughs> Like after right, like well, right. I hope I did it justice. <laughs> Don't be mad at me or whatever. Um, and you know, yeah, I just yeah. remembered loving you guys out there doing, you know, your thing. And yeah, I'm glad. You know, I mean, that's the thing I think too about you know the beauty of righteous babe. Hopefully, uh, we're not, you know, we can't really do wonders for our artists. We can't work, we can't do miracles. But when you have an artist run label, there is a different sensibility. There is an understanding of what it means to be on that other side. And so hopefully we have tried to act along the way, you know, not just as the you know, as a label, as though we are the artist's advocate, we're the ally, you know, not the exploiter. Well, we were very fortunate to um, be 
part of those good graces <laughs> or to res- and we appreciate that we were definitely like still you know out there grinding it and and it helped that you helped us in various different ways so i know we're we're all very uh grateful for that and touring with you was really fun uh i remember that was our first time playing red rocks and also andrew bird performed too who i didn't know at the time and then became like a huge fan of him as well so uh, i want to know a little bit about uh your pilgrimage to new orleans and like what that's meant for your music because i know we kind of reconnected down there and you playing with terrence and ivan and some of the other like great new orleans people um has really added a cool flavor to your yeah i mean for real i have some very powerful neighbors these days yeah and um it's great to be able to make a local call and have these amazing players and spirits come and elevate my little songs you know so and also just as you know you know the the depth of the soul and the spirit that just pervades this city is there for you to tap into for you to fall back into and and be lifted by you know so that's why i ended up here i just you know, I'm still technically living in Buffalo, but I'm all kind of lonely and I don't have a lot of reason to go home between tours, you know, to just think my thoughts. So I started coming down to New Orleans to be here when I was not on tour and see music and get fed. And um, I started renting an apartment because I was skulking around so much. And then, you know, it just oozed into the you know living here never looked back i mean i love buffalo i love so many places i have friends all over i wish i was closer to them but i i'll never leave here yeah i love it there so much i think someday i'll end up there i actually and you and i love the bywater there's yeah. just such a great vibe there yeah yeah. Are there any like current current musicians or current current artists that you're like listening to these days? I'm curious, like what's in your collection or or playlists or whatever. Uh, yeah. I mean, I wish I could say I was a uh uh ver- you know voraciously listening to music like I was when I was young and unfettered. But I got yeah. kids in my face. I got a list of things to do. Yeah. Eat. You know. So I feel like yeah when I when I spin music late at night to return all the emails or work on this play that I'm working on writing or it's it's Miles Davis it's you know John Hassel it's Betty Cart I just yeah I'm going back to like my you know my uh, my my staples yeah since we've had our our baby boy it's it's like Miles Davis. It's even like I've been playing classical music for him. But yeah, in the last like couple of years, it's it's the same kind of thing. It's like when I want to relax, I, when I'm in like my music zone, I'm listening to like my my tracks or mixes or different things I'm working on. But then when I'm like just chilling, I really want to listen to like right. old soul music or or yeah. jazz or yeah. like you want to tap you want to. You want to hit ground. You want to tap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You want to feet in the grass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, are you are you doing anything like during 
the quarantine in terms of performing? Like, are you into the, any of the like online or, you know, virtual performances? I think I've avoided it as much and as long as I can, but it's <laughs> coming to get that. me. It's coming yeah, to get yeah, me. Yeah. You know, I have a new record coming out, so I'm going to yeah, do What is a- the date of the actual rest of the album coming out? Well, it was going to be early December, but my my people are my team is now saying, "Girl, you're you're going to release this record into a cacophony of political and social chaos. You are everybody's going to be looking in this direction, then it's going to be the new year and they'll be on to the next thing and could you do us a favor and wait till January?" So, I'm like, "Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. it's January now. Um, but, you know, we're rolling out some of the more um, political and timely songs ahead cool. so that they can hopefully do the work they're meant to do. I think that also that's kind of the way now is you release a lot of songs and right. have more more reason to shout. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. Over here, um, over here. Exactly. Well, I love the new single. I can't wait to hear the rest of the album. And I really appreciate you doing this. And it was good talking with you. I hope we get to play together I in hope person so too. Um, sooner than later. I hope to see your mug down here sooner <laughs> rather too, than later. Me too. I, I want to bring my boy oh, down there. Right. Too. You have an extra yeah. X yeah. factor now. Exactly. Exactly. But uh, yeah, I hope we get down there soon. Thank Sweet. you so much. Pleasure, pleasure yeah, to you talk too. to you. We'll talk okay. soon. Hi. I want to thank Ani for being on the show. Such an amazing artist and amazing person. Um, so cool to talk to her. Before you go, we're going to play her new single. And I just love this track and I love the production and I love the direction um, that she's going with this with this album. This one's called Do or Die. Can do this 
Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kras. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email krasplus1 at gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.